the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back listeners. We're back today with Dr. Aubrey Armento and Amanda McCarthy. We're discussing the female athlete triad and we'd like to discuss some about the treatment. So let's say we have decided that this patient has the female athlete triad. What do we do? How do we treat it? How can we restore the patient's energy balance? I refer to Amanda <laughs> and Amanda will treat with nutritional intervention. That's the primary or mainstay of treatment, as well as considering a multidisciplinary approach, often looping in psychology if there's concern for disordered eating or, you know, other need for psychological support with the treatment, as well as, you know, our adolescent medicine colleagues, endocrine colleagues, physical therapy too. But I'll let Amanda take it from here because she's really the one that's the implementing that mainstay of treatment, which is restoring energy balance, as you as you mentioned. The short answer is in order to restore that energy balance, then the athlete needs to eat more, right? And that, that sounds so simple, but depending on the reason why the athlete is not getting enough food, that can be a really complex approach to make sure that we're getting enough calories into these athletes. So what I will do is I will explore the reasons why the athlete isn't getting enough fuel. Maybe there's some misinformation that they've taken in. Maybe they've been restricting. Maybe there are some disordered patterns. Maybe it is just logistics and it's just hard to eat the amount that they need over the amount of time that they have in the day. And then we work based on each individual patient's needs for energy balance, as well as, you know, food preferences, the amount of time that they have, what their exercise schedule and school schedule looks like. We'll individualize that treatment to either meet certain portions, choose certain foods that are more energy dense. Like if they've been eating a lot of vegetables as snacks, we may switch that over to more nuts or PB&J sandwiches or bagels with cream cheese instead. So really just educating them on the foods that are going to actually help them meet their energy balance as opposed to just making them feel full without giving them what they need. Got it. So important to get the right nutrition. Dr. Amento, I guess I'll ask you this one. Do you ever use oral contraceptives for patients that have the female athlete triad? No. We have learned that oral contraceptives, while previously thought to maybe help restore menstrual function or to um, help restore bone mineral density, in fact, that's not really as supported in the literature. The most common form of estrogen in oral contraceptive pills is a, is a type that goes through first pass metabolism in the liver, and this downregulates IGF-1, which is a, an important anabolic hormone for bone health. And so the proposed mechanism of sort of lack of response to with bone mineral density to oral contraceptives is, is based on the type of estrogen that is in most OCPs. Um, the other thing is that while somebody will have usually a monthly bleed when they're on a monthly OCP pack, that bleed is just related to the fact that they're having a withdrawal from the exogenous estrogen and progesterone that they're being given through the OCP. So it's not a reflection of a true 
natural menstrual cycle. So I do think that it provides false reassurance if someone says, oh, I'm putting you on an oral contraceptive to, to normalize your menstrual cycle, you're really giving them exogenous hormones, right? And that bleed is not really a reflection of, of true natural menstruation. So I think that's an important thing to remember. Obviously, there are, are reasons why people go on birth control. So, so I, I you know, um, certainly wouldn't discourage use of OCPs for the purpose of contraception. But I think in athletes who do go on OCPs, it's important to remember that even if they're having a monthly bleed, that's not necessarily a reflection of that natural menstruation. And, and we don't have the evidence to really support that OCPs are going to restore or increase bone mineral density. There is more recent evidence to support the use of transdermal estradiol, which is a different formulation of estrogen. It's similar to, or it is the same basically physiologic form of estrogen. And there have been Dr. Kate Ackerman, who's, you know, really just a, a huge pioneer in the field of female athlete health, conducted a, a randomized control trial with groups of female athletes with oligoamenorrhea who received the patch versus the pill versus nothing. And they did see significant increases in bone mineral density in those treated with the patch versus the pill and in the control group. And so um, the conclusion of that study was that transdermal estradiol can, can play a role in treatment of the triad, particularly in those with osteoporosis, low bone mineral density, those who are maybe not responding adequately to nutritional interventions or as an adjunctive treatment for those with low bone mineral density or those who continue to suffer from stress fractures. So again, the mainstay of treatment is this non-pharmacological treatment with nutritional restoration. However, transdermal estradiol may be considered, but not using OCPs for the purpose of treatment of the triad because we really don't have the evidence to support that. So let's see, we have our 16-year-old gymnast who has the triad we diagnosed, got her on the right track with her nutrition programs, her intakes better. She's being managed with a transdermal OCP. Let's talk about the recovery. What can you tell her about what to expect? What kind of timeline is it going to take for her to get some of these metabolic systems back on track and doing better? And when does her bone density improve? When are we going to expect fewer stress fractures or similar kinds of things? Well, I'll answer that question, but I'll probably take out the part of the athlete being treated with transdermal estradiol because I think it's we know a little bit more about what the expected recovery is in somebody who is is being treated with nutritional restoration. I think the picture's a little can be a little less clear in, in how transdermal estradiol may play a role in the timeline of recovery. But in somebody who is adequately receiving nutritional restoration, we can see the body start to reverse some of those adaptations to that energy deficiency within the first few months. But it can take up to six months or even beyond that for the body to normalize the reproductive hormone cycling to the point where someone starts to have spontaneous regular menstruation. So that can take you know, up to six months or beyond, like I said. And then we think it can take a year, two years 
for bone mineral density to, to increase in response to that. And, and that's in the setting of somebody maintaining consistent, adequate energy balance over time. So if an athlete's very up and down, or they have, you know, a good month and then two months where they fall off and they lose some weight and then they get back on track for a couple months and fall off again, right? Even if that goes on for a year, we wouldn't really necessarily expect to see the same types of improvements that we would in somebody who's been consistent with that nutritional restoration over the course of a year. And it just takes time for the body's various hormone levels to to normalize and then for those hormones to have the downstream effects on bone uh, that we we wanted to have in order to to improve bone mineral density. I see a lot of especially males, I don't know as much with females, but people are drinking protein shakes. They're taking supplements. I'm sure calcium vitamin D for bone health, but I mean, what's your take on that? What what do you recommend for young people, especially with nutritional supplements, you know, GNC, protein shakes, that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a really great question. And that's something I really commonly see in in my practice as well. And there's a lot of of hype per se around protein shakes in general. And I will say for a young athlete, it is so easy for them to meet their protein needs, even on a vegetarian or even a vegan diet if they're eating a variety of different foods and meeting their energy needs. And so generally my take on protein shakes in general is that we would use them in a convenience type of setting and making sure that they have third-party certification on them as well. Supplements in the U.S. are not regulated, and so we really need to see either an NSF, an informed choice. Uh, BSCG is another uh, outside provider where they're actually verifying that what's in the supplement is actually all that's in the supplement. Because outside of that, we do have research that shows us that supplements can be contaminated with anything from higher or lower levels of the product that they're marketing, all the way to potentially having medications in them as well um, and being contaminated from that. So from a safety perspective, we really need to make sure that these uh, supplements do have outside certifications. So my message is always to help these athletes understand what their nutrition needs are through food and that relying on supplementation is not going to provide them any additional advantage unless they are specifically low in something like calcium and vitamin D where it is appropriate to be supplementing. Got it. This has been such a great talk. I appreciate you guys coming on. The last thing that I wanted to touch on, and and you had talked about this earlier, about male athletes who develop the energy deficiency, obviously no menstrual irregularities, uh, but poor bone health, uh, like female athletes, how does it occur? Is it just, you know, under fueling? Is it eating disorders? How, How does that happen? In male athletes, the uh, etiology of the male athlete triad is, it can be very similar to what we will see in female athletes. So it, it can be low energy availability related just to under fueling without disordered eating, but we certainly can see disordered eating and eating disorders in male athletes. The numbers, the prevalence reported is lower than in females, but I do think there's concern for under-reporting just related to stigma with with eating disorders and and maybe the male population not feeling quite as 
comfortable seeking care for, for that. So um, the etiology really can be quite the same as what we see in female athletes. And, you know, the hormonal disruption is decrease in testosterone as opposed to decrease in estrogen and progesterone like we could see in in female athletes. And it can be a little harder to detect, I think, because they don't have something like a menstrual cycle to monitor over time to assess as sort of an easier marker or tool for um, assessing the development of irregularities there. But but we can see fatigue and sexual dysfunction in in those with uh, low testosterone and the effects of that low testosterone as well as low energy availability can impair bone health in a similar fashion to how we can see it in the female athlete triad. I'd also like to add on that point that while the research is less robust on male athletes, it does seem that their energy needs per kilo of lean mass is different potentially than our female athletes, maybe on the lower side, even where some research is suggesting that male low energy availability is closer to 15 calories per kilo lean mass, whereas adequate is over 30 calories per kilo. Again, more research is really needed on that, Um, but it seems that they have a different state standard and also males are going to have higher lean mass than females, especially as they go through puberty as well. So there's just more information and again, slightly different calculations that need to happen with them. Dr. Romento and Amanda, I really appreciate you being on. Have we missed anything today? Is there anything else that you would like to share? Anything that I didn't bring up or we didn't discuss? My biggest takeaway is just encouraging people to be more open to screening for the triad and in patients that they see in clinic, even if they're not necessarily being referred more specifically for that concern. Um, I pretty much screen every athlete who comes in to see me with any concern for stress fracture or diagnosis for a stress fracture, even if it's their first one. And for other things like recurrent, even soft tissue injuries or slow to heal injuries. You know, I'm pretty quick to to screen for this. And we actually ask uh, questions about menstrual function for all new patient intake visits for our female athletes. And so I think these athletes can often fly under the radar. And sometimes it's it's too late once they're identified and, you know, the negative consequences of that may be more challenging to to reverse. And so I think, you know, having a, a screening process in place in clinic, especially in these young athletes where this is really the time to, to intervene sooner so that we can help promote them in having healthy relationships with their body and food and sport across their lifespan. My biggest takeaway is just to be aware of your own bias around BMI, as we discussed briefly, and the growth curve of the athlete. So while the athlete may be appearing to grow normally, they very much could still be underfueled to the point that it is altering bone metabolism. And so it's important to, if we are seeing these recurrent bone bone stress fractures, or like Dr. Armento mentioned, even on the first, she's doing some assessment to see if there could be Um, potentially some energy availability issues going on. It's nice to have a dietitian just to refer out to, just to see if that is a piece of the puzzle causing them to have these stress fractures, regardless of where their weight is currently sitting. Great information. I really appreciate it. And for our ortho people that are listening out there, I mean, you're treating the patient, not just the fracture. So if you see someone that might be at risk, consider it. 
I don't think necessarily everybody in orthopedics is going to work up this, but at least be aware of it and make sure the patient has follow-up, make sure they can get treated. Dr. Amento and Amanda, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the OrthoPAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. For non-members, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual content.